Welcome to The Improver, the podcast that explores ideas in healthcare improvement and participatory change. Hosted by Dr. Naeem Ahmed and Lara Mott. Hello and welcome to the second episode of The Improver. I'm Lara, CEO and co-founder of ImproveWell. I'm Naeem, consultant radiologist and also a co-founder of ImproveWell. We are delighted to welcome Dr. Peter Carter, OBE, as our first guest. Peter is the former Chief Executive and General Secretary of the Royal College of Nursing. He also spent many years as a Chief Exec in the NHS. He's now an independent consultant and has been asked on three occasions to chair NHS trusts, including Medway, East Kent and North Middlesex. Peter is a registered mental health and general nurse by background and holds a master's and PhD from the University of Birmingham. He is visiting professor at numerous universities and an honorary fellow of the Royal College of General Practitioners. Most recently, Peter was recognized by the UK's chief nursing officers for an outstanding lifetime contribution to nursing with the prestigious CNO award for lifetime achievement. So Peter, welcome to The Improver. It's Good to uh, be here and um, uh, looking forward to uh, hopefully an interesting conversation over the next uh, half an hour. Uh, last year was certainly not the year that healthcare expected. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're focusing on right now and what the pandemic has thrown at you, professionally okay. speaking? Sure. Well, um, since I left the RCN five years ago, I set up my own independent consultancy. Uh, I've done a huge range of different things, which has also taken me to 10 different countries, um, but also I've worked across the UK. And um, although um, the lockdown came last March, uh, I've just been incredibly busy. Uh, I do bespoke work with some individual trusts. Um, I've uh, done some complex investigations, some medico-legal work. I mentor people. Um, uh, some people overseas and that's the great thing about Zoom and Teams and all those other things that we've got used to but that's been so interesting working in different countries the country I've worked in most has been China where over the last four years I've worked in 32 different cities and towns um, and uh, but also places like the Philippines New Zealand and then some one-off things like um talking at a big conference in Poland and Slovenia, that sort of stuff. So, I mean, for me, uh, it's been really busy and uh, I'm really enjoying it. So what would you, I mean, you've obviously then been able to look at all these different healthcare systems, I guess, across across these different countries. And you have um, this breadth of experience, which is just so fascinating to, to hear. What would you say in your experience in terms of the keys to um, having a great culture within these healthcare organisations? Well, ir- irrespective of the country and irrespective of the architecture, you know, the managerial framework, it all comes down to leadership, mm. comes down to not, not just the people at the top, but they set the tone. And as you come down through the echelons and, you know, one of the things that I'd like to say has served me in good stead is understanding that it's everybody in the organization uh, that uh, makes the thing work. And uh, in various trusts that I've been parachuted into, I, I used techniques that I used when I, I was chief executive of the Central and Northwest London Trust for 12 years. 
and then at the RCM for nine years. And one of the things I really majored on was saying that if everybody is doing their job, irrespective of what their job is, they contribute to the success of the organization. So, you know, when I went to Medway, East Kent, North Mid, I, I visited people in the finance department, the maintenance department, the cooks, the chefs, the receptionists, the medical secretaries. And if each one of those is doing what they do well, they make an impact on patient care. And if you take during COVID, you know, for all the reasons we understand, people talk regularly about the nurses and the doctors, absolutely understand that. Well, I also talk about the physios, the radiographers, yeah. uh, the speech therapists, and many other people. But I also talk about, you know, the people keeping the place clean. The, the, the people maintaining the equipment in the operating theatres. You know, I, mean, I could go on, but every member of staff. And the thing predating COVID that I was always so very aware of, people like hospital porters, they're characteristic by and large. They're incredibly committed. I mean, most yeah. of them love the job and they stay for a long time. You get your portering service working well, and boy, you get patients and food and supplies ferrying around the hospital at a rate of knots and it arrives in the right place on time get it wrong and you get all kinds of problems i mean that if we could just print that on the side of <laughs> kind of every bus and uh, in in the country that would be great because there is something that we feel strongly about which is that everyone's doing important work but also have an um, opportunity to improve the places that they're working in. And, and as you said, for example, porters, as you outline very directly, um, impact patient care. And yeah. unfortunately, not everyone has understood that yet in terms of then empowering, you know, your porters, um, your admin staff, everyone to get involved in the improvement process. Why do you think that is? Well, some people just don't get it. Some people are very hierarchical. Um, they work in a feudal system. With one of the organizations that I work with, one of the senior managers came in every day past reception and never said good morning to the receptionists. Mm. They're the front end of the organization. It all kind of starts there. And again, they're very, very committed. And I knew that because we were talking one day and um, I'd mentioned how helpful she was. And she always said her name. And this woman had worked there, this senior manager, for about 13 years. And they just saw them as low life. And people just don't get it. You know, every piece of the machinery has to be working well for the whole thing to work. People listening to this might be a bit disappointed with what I'm about to say, but I'm going to be very critical of something. You, you remember the day just a few weeks back when the woman who had the first to have the vaccine. Yes. And quite rightly, the media were there and all the rest of it, and she was dead chuffed. And then eventually, because um, she wasn't very mobile, she was wheeled back to the ward. Do you know who wheeled her back? Well, I'm going to tell you. I, I just, I can't believe this. She came into the ward and there was uh, two lines of staff clapping and the person pushing the wheelchair was a doctor saw his name badge and I thought oh for god's sake surely how often I mean he's a probably a fine doctor and a great man but how often has he been down to a clinic and wheeled somebody back to a ward if ever that was a lost opportunity to say to one of the long-serving porters 
This is your moment. You're going to be across every newspaper, every hospital porter, you know, because he's there. And I just thought, oh, I was so disappointed with that. I don't know if the chief exec of that trust will ever listen to this. And if he does, he might think, ooh. But I just think that was such a wasted opportunity. It's the wrong message. So there, there is th- that thing about valuing, valuing staff, which you, you, you've mentioned in that, um, in that example. What, what, what do you think staff really look for? in terms of being valued what do you think what do you think when people say that what do they actually mean do you think they want recognition they want recognition that you know what they're doing is making that contribution um and uh i remember when i spoke to the finance department at north mid when i did the six months of chair and i went down there and i, I talked to them about you know if you're getting the coding right getting the income right getting the expenditure right you contribute to patient care and a couple of people said gosh you know never actually saw it like that. You know, I just come in, you know, I'm a coding clerk, get my head down, all the rest of it. Um, and, and yet, you know, these two women particularly were incredibly committed. So they want recognition, but they also want the opportunity to be able to contribute. Um, it is very, very interesting. And, and uh, in some of the places I've worked, um, some people, you know, at lunchtime come up onto the old age wards and help elderly people with their lunch. Because as you know, there's a huge issue to do with um, nutrition and uh, insufficient staff on wards and the volunteer work. People want to be part of something. They want to feel part of something and they want that recognition. That's why I'm a great believer in in award ceremonies in organizations. And uh, again, making sure they're multidisciplinary and all of these people uh, have the opportunity but also respect respect for their, their role i mean one of the things i feel you know proud to be british not in a jingoistic way but one of the things that uh, i deplore is the way again we still have a class system in terms of we don't quite value electricians and plasterers and bricklayers and plumbers and all the rest of it and you know somebody goes off get a degree which i've got and um, people still kind of, oh yeah, I've been to university and got a degree. Whereas in countries like Germany, people like electricians and plumbers and bricklayers and all the rest of it, they enjoy huge respect and status. Uh, So it is a legacy of a class-based system that's still in our DNA that hopefully is beginning to um, be diluted, but I still think we've got a way to go. Peter, you are clearly a a natural champion of the people. And I know that you and I have previously spoken about some of the initiatives that you um, personally championed when you were chief exec. During your tenure at the RCN, you you won several national awards. It was in the Sunday Times, top 100 companies to work for. Um, Do you think your background in mental health has shaped you as a leader and the way that you lead in particular? Yes, uh, to a point. But I also think it comes down to all of the building blocks in life, you know, parents, family, experiences. Um, When I worked in mental health, um, I had a a wonderful experience of working with a consultant psychiatrist, Dr. Peter Bruggen, sadly, just died about 18 months ago. And that was a very formulative experience for me about, well, first of all, this guy was a great believer in multidisciplinary work. Um, Mm. But there I I learned, you know, particularly with working with very disturbed and challenging children about how to get the best out of people. And one of the things about some of these 
children who many of them had pretty awful upbringings not all of them but many of them had um one of the things we used to do was actually set people minimum objectives i mean there's a there's a danger you know if, if you're a child that's had a highly dysfunctional background and what you really need to do is break it down and, and start very small you know try and get a child through a day without smashing a window or losing their temper you know don't try and cure their personality problems because it's too big a leap so it's all those kind of little kind of steps so sometimes minimal objectives and when I, I i transferred that and i'm sure others do the same but from a different perspective when i used to set objectives for people um you know you'd often meet somebody that you know about 37 objectives and god knows what and they're gonna shoot for the stars and i'd kind of break it down and say look i'd prefer you did three or four things did them well strike them off and then we do another three or four. Don't give me a long, long list of ambitious, really impressive, um, and end up doing lots of them not particularly very well because you're going to set yourself up to fail, and that's no good. So applying some of those techniques, I think they're are incredibly transferable. I suppose the other thing is that um, I've I learned when you want to confront issues, you don't necessarily need to do it in a confrontational way. Mm. Um, you know, there's nothing worse than uh, and going back to my days when I was a therapist, you know, where, where you know, you're dealing with these difficult kids and get a kid really arguing with you. And if you go, don't you argue with me, you know, all you're going to do is kind of inflame it where it's about kind of like, let's just lower the temperature here a bit. Let's just see if we can find a different way through this. So I had lots of those transferable skills, which I think, well, in fact, I know stood me in good stead. And it sounds like you really listen as well so you you ask the right questions and you listen as a leader which is something that we're very passionate about is there an example you can or maybe something you can think of in in your career as a chief exec i know you touched on a couple when we last spoke that stick in your mind where you you asked your frontline colleagues for example what mattered to them and and then you made some some small changes that made a big impact yeah i mean i, I feel very comfortable with staff meetings and having big sort of briefings and giving people the opportunity to ask questions. And uh, one of the things I always said was that, you know, there's no such thing as a daft question. And also if somebody asks you a question and you really don't know the answer, fess up to it and say, look, I, I'm not sure, but we'll get back to you and make sure you get back uh, to, to uh, uh, the people. But um, if I, if I used an example from the Royal College of Nursing, and this is all very public, so I'm not saying anything that wasn't well known. When I took over, membership had been dropping for many years. And membership is where you get your income, and it's the lifeblood that you know, gives you the oxygen to run the organisation. And um, the recruitment of members was very mixed. Some regions and some areas did it extremely well and others, um, it was very, very poor indeed. And funnily enough, I was talking about receptionists. If, say, a nurse from Australia or somewhere was, had come over to the UK, you know, on a two-year work permit, lot of them, they, they, they predominantly work in London because, you know, it's the mecca, the place to go. 
Um, you know, they don't go to Hartlepool. Sorry, with due respect to Hartlepool. They, you know, it's London is where they want to be. And a lot of them would call in the Royal College of Nursing and say, yeah, can I join? And they were given a telephone number to ring in Cardiff. And one of the receptionists said to me, do you know, we, we, we could sign them up. You know, it's regularly that people come in here. And I'm shocked that they were given a free phone number down in Cardiff because you clinch the deal. And these receptionists were very quickly geared up with all the forms and a little machine uh, to take the money. And um, it was just another little ingredient of them feeling part of it, um, but it helped with the membership. So something as simple as that, but you only get that if you're inviting people to contribute, uh, to give ideas. So that's just one that immediately popped out of my head. I mean, there are plenty of other examples, but uh, sometimes it's those tiny little things that can make a big difference. Absolutely. Naeem, you look like you're you want to ask the question because you're smiling that's that's just a peter i i know in every work setting but particularly around clinical work settings where you have the added complexity of um not being in one place all the time being you know across different sites on on the same day um it it makes that process of having that small idea and getting it to the right person um really difficult and i think that's you know one place where we saw technology as being able to uh, provide that solution and you know try and bridge bridge that gap how, how do organizations become more effective at that that listening piece and being able to capture that well first of all I, I think in terms of recruiting an appointment particularly with people with senior managers I mean I've worked with some great great people been very very fortunate with great models but there's also been a couple of times in my career when I think my golly you know how did this guy get this job I think that you need a mixed economy of skills and you know I've met I mean one person I worked with he was so bright so able and 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 hugely talented but his people skills were um, really nil and and was also far too cerebral you've got to be able to communicate with people. And um, I remember he, he, he was talking about some, funnily enough, a recurring theme in this conversation about the portering department in a hospital. And he addressed the porters and he, he stood up and he said, um, is the, he'd asked me to come to the meeting with him. Uh, and he said, he said to the group of porters, gentlemen, I've been doing an analysis of the methodology you deploy for the distribution of food. And I have to say, it's counterintuitive. And there was a sea of these porters. And you kind of thinking, what is he on about? Um, and and I, I spoke to him afterwards and he didn't get it. And he, he, he ended up, this guy, he got a chief exec's post. And I knew he would because, you know, he, you know Cambridge, well-educated, very good. But he didn't last long because he just did not know how to work in a team. And I remember, you know, because him and I were on really, and he was, he was a really nice guy. And I said, you'd be much better off in, in a research department, something like that. Your, your skills. I mean, this guy, you know, a policy would come out and he, he, he would be able to absorb it and, and as quick as anything. Um, but it, it's about getting the right people in the right jobs with those mixture of skills. And I have seen, Again, some people just not been able to cut it as a chief exec because they don't have that understanding about bringing people with you 
I have a I have a question for you both, if I may. Obviously, we we know that the mental and physical challenges on the frontline workforce are, are enormous right now. Um, Peter, I'll, I'll start with you first, whether it's the nursing community or, or the workforce in, in more general. How can we best support them right now or how can leaders best support them right now? And obviously, Naeem, from, from your experience, too, it would be great to hear your view. Well, I mean, I mean, going to state the obvious now that uh, you know, people are tired. People exhausted, mentally exhausted, uh, and one of the things that is bedeviling everything, of course, is not knowing when the end date was. Mm. I mean, at different times in my career, um, well, I've managed prison services, uh, and um, I remember uh, talking to some prisoners, and we were because we ran the mental health of it. And one of the things, you know, I remember this guy saying that, you know, he got a six-year sentence, and he, he knew that with good behaviour, he'd be out in three. And he had about another year to go. So, you know, he, it, that framework kept him sane. Mm. And one of the things about what we're all doing now, we're all going through, is no one knows, you know, when, oh, when do we get to that end? Six weeks, eight weeks, another year or whatever. And that uncertainty is really adding to the pressure. In addition, the mixed messages, you know, where, you know, what is the science every night on the news, different people with different theories, it's making life difficult. So what we need to do is that we need to work with that uncertainty. Uh, I think, I, I mean, I have seen some amazing examples um, with NHS Trust putting in support, all kinds of support, uh, support in terms of using psychologists, using groups of people, mutual support, but also practical stuff. I mean, one of the things that a lot of trusts are not really, haven't been very good at in the past is some of the kind of, you, you look at the average ward and name, you may have seen this. I mean, the, the, the staff room is usually full of clapped out furniture that people have brought in. Uh, quite astonishing, really. Um, whereas a lot of work has done on making sure good quality rest facilities Good, good microwave ovens, so you'd have to bring in sandwiches, a fridge to keep the milk in, all those kind of, again, those tiny little things that make people feel that they're cared for, that somebody's looking out for them. Because if you can get it right with the food and that sort of thing, you've got a much better chance of getting it right with the, with the product. I also think um, when things are not going well, um, it's about having debriefs. Uh, a lot of relatives are getting a bit frazzled with the staff. You know, we've seen assaults rising and there's a lot of intemperate behaviour and it's about putting in support for that. So a whole wide range of things, Lara, that uh, again contribute to making people feel protected. And when people are not well, making it legit for them to go off. Uh, I know we're short of staff, mm. but if, if you're really going under, much better to give somebody a week off and then get them back and be fit rather than struggling on and struggling on and then having months out of the, out of the, out of action. Naeem, anything, anything you'd add I, or comment I, I on? Was, I was just, just struck by what Peter says, because I think the, the key now is really how we support our staff in the best the, the best way possible. Um, given the, um, I know people are talking about um, the trauma that the staff have been been through, and not just, for example, not just physical PPE but psychological PPE as well, and how we can um, how we can support 
uh, staff in that way. Peter, I just wanted to ask, what, what do you think your top three things really would be now that we could do to improve the lives of staff? I mean, you mentioned a couple, but what, what, what are the things that um, right now staff would really appreciate? You know, we talk about a no-fault culture um, and things do go wrong. And, and, and I think it's inevitable that because of the pressure of work, that there will be more mistakes um, and people need to know that they're going to be supported. Now, obviously if somebody's doing something and there is no mitigation, of course they have to be held to account. But most of the time this is going to be because people are work really working at the extreme end and the consequences of that are that things will go wrong. So be being supportive. I think the other thing is about, um, well, one of the, again the positives has been the multidisciplinary working, which I think has really aided um, teamwork and people identifying with the different roles. So it, that, that kind of thing I think is is very important. I also think that senior managers need to walk the job. Now I, I know that you know we talk about social distancing and all the rest of it, but executives have to be in their workplace, uh, there has to be the visible presence. Um, I mean, up at the Lister Hospital at Stevenage, um, it's a guy called Steve Andrews who does a lot of work um, with uh, organizational development. Um, Steve regularly stands at the entrance of the hospital and welcomes staff in in the morning. And just a little thing like that. And, you know, people might say it's a gimmick. I don't think it is. It's heartfelt and people like it. Yeah, it's empathy, I think, is the is the key as well. I think people, leaders need to have empathy because um, these are unprecedented times and uh, people are doing their best. And sometimes, as you say, it doesn't go to plan. Peter, we, you've touched on uh, nurses, allied health professionals, um, other frontline colleagues who are perhaps underrepresented normally in quality improvement processes. Do you think there's anything in particular that leaders can do to help empower nurses in particular with your RCN hat on without focusing too much on a particular staff group? You've touched on the themes of multidisciplinary teams and and bringing different skill sets together to really deliver results. But is there anything that people could do on a practical level to encourage more involvement from those underrepresented staffing groups? Well, If I can answer this slightly in a different way, which I hope will make sense. One of the things which I just think has been amazing with COVID is the number of highly distinguished senior medical staff that have been going in to intensive care units and working as nursing assistants. You know, there's a very distinguished surgeon at Barts and he's been working nights. Uh, David Knott. Um, you know, very famous man in trauma care. He's been working as a nursing assistant. We've seen so much of, of that going on, of people just knuckling down. And I'm hoping that post-COVID, not that those people will be doing that because they've got skills that need to be better deployed elsewhere. But I'm hoping that what that does is it kind of leaves a bit of a legacy about people acknowledging and recognising, uh, again, something we touched on earlier, the kind of skills uh, that that people have i think it's also brought i think 
I think it's brought the best out of many, many people, but also something which I know is close to both of your hearts, the use of technology. When I was at the RCN, as well as going all over the UK, when I was up in Scotland, I went to Orkney, Shetlands and the Western Isles. And in the Orkneys, which I'm sure you know, is an archipelago of, I think it's about 70 or 80 islands and about 30 are inhabited. As district nurses go from island to island on little motorboats, uh, <laughs> quite entertaining. But they, they, um, they, they could be in a, a cottage and see a baby with a rash that they didn't recognise. And using their phone, they beam that back to the paediatric department mm. at Aberdeen Royal Infirmary. And I remember saying, we could be doing this in London, in Birmingham, in Cornwall. They did it because they couldn't afford to send helicopters all the time and find it was just a routine rational reset. So all of those things we should now build on, all of the, all of the video consultations that are just going to make life so much easier. I know we're not going to go back to how as it was before, but I hope we don't begin to slip back because out of this crisis, we can take these advances that have been made which have been proven to be successful. It, it took a crisis to get people to use video conference. I mean, what we're doing today. Yes. There was a time when, you know, I got on a train and come to wherever you are and you don't need to do that. So lots of things that we can take forward out of that that help us move forward. That actually leads me perfectly onto another question I wanted to ask you because it, it has been incredible to see how quickly the NHS has adopted digital technology, certainly in the last 12 months to, to facilitate new ways of working and remote working. As a leader, again, if you put yourself back into the shoes of a, of a chief exec now, how do you ensure that you keep good change and quickly eradicate, I don't want to say bad change, but yeah. there, is, there are inevitably going to be things that have been adopted that might not work. So how do you embrace that culture of rapid learning and, and being able to make small changes now based on those big ones that people have embraced well that's where i think what you've got to do is you've got to be upbeat and you've got to embrace it you've got you've got to talk with people about it you've got to say look at what we've managed to do here uh, uh look at the outcomes look at the benefits um yes. you know whether it's it's it, it's it's video consultations with gps uh remote consultations with outpatients uh, and then the use of all of the technology. But we, you know, we've got to say this can be done. Peter, thank you so much. You've provided some wonderful insights from your vast experience in the field. Before we end, I'd like to take a moment to introduce something that we'd like to feature in each episode. We're calling it Small But Mighty, where we want to highlight an idea that has caught our eye. For example, a small change that might be easy to implement and can make a big difference. So up first is an idea that is pertinent to the pandemic and what staff are experiencing right now. As we're all aware, um, with current redeployment programmes or perhaps staff volunteering for new roles, staff are finding themselves in new environments. They may be highly skilled and they may be an experienced professional. However, they're in a new working environment, which in itself can be challenging. So a lovely concept which someone shared on the Improve Our Solution is to give staff a badge to explain that they're new, they are experienced in what they do, but they are new to the ward and to ask people to be patient with them. And that's something that you may have seen on Twitter. There's a few variations of this idea, including more subtle badges 
with a symbol for staff who are in the know, but perhaps patients won't immediately notice. And it's something that we really loved. Well, I, I think I think that's terrific. You're making it legit that you don't know um, uh, you know, even your way around the place, uh, let alone some of the answers, because uh, people have kind of assume that um, you, know, you hit the deck running and, you know, just because you've been qualified or whatever for so many years. So, yeah. And I mean, I, and I do think all of that kind of inducting people in and making sure that they, they know what, you know, is expected of them and that sort of thing. Again, it's been a recurring theme, but, but it's that's the kind of oil in the machine that kind of helps it to go around. And it is about helping people when they're starting new jobs. By the way, one of the things that I always say to, I mean, I do mentoring for chief execs. And I say, when you start, first of all, don't touch anything until you've been in for three months. Because by golly, chief execs do like to mess about with the management structure because it kind of demonstrates that they're here and they, they know what they're doing and they're in charge and it's the most tangible thing you can do. Whereas I say, don't touch anything until you've been in for three months and then you know what you're looking at. But also during those three months, ask, 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 ask questions. Because I don't know what it is about the three months threshold. After three months, there's kind of an assumption that you'll know it all. And if you haven't been asking the questions, People then feel, oh, I can't ask that now because I've been here four or five months. <laughs> so just ask away. Don't touch anything. And also people that are sh you think are shining might be dazzling you. And there might be some other people that you think, mm, not quite sure about them. They might be a lot deeper. So again, it's about getting to know your staff, their strengths and perhaps uh, things that uh, they need developing as opposed to weaknesses. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure having you. Well, can I thank you for inviting me? And I, I'm, I will follow Improve Well with interest. And uh, if there's any other time we want to do something like this or just chat, I'd be absolutely delighted. Oh, Peter, uh, I've got that on record now. So. <laughs> you, won't, you won't get out of that one. <laughs> uh, right. Well, we can have some fun. <laughs> Many thanks to our guest today, Dr. Peter Carter, OBE. The Improver is a production of Improver Limited. To learn more about the Improver solution, visit improvewell.com. Subscribe to the Improver at Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening.